today. Happy Memorial Day. Glad that y'all are here um, and probably enjoying the weather outside. Unseasonably cool, but um, delightful nonetheless. Uh, we have been in a series looking at Isaiah in the New Testament. Today I'm going to depart a little bit from that, and we're going to talk about Isaiah, just a story that happens in there. And it does, it's not carried forward into the New Testament, but I knew this story was coming, and I thought, you know, um, this is a good story, even though it's not mentioned in the New Testament. We ought to at least con- uh, take, a, take a Sunday to consider it. So we're going to take a look at this. It comes from Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. It's repeated in first, I'm sorry, 2 Kings, I think it's chapters 18 and 19, verbatim. I actually sat both of those texts down, and I don't know if the Hebrew is exactly the same, but at least the English rendering is exactly the same. Uh, this story is repeated in 2 Kings when it comes to Hezekiah. So there are multiple kings uh, who reigned over the territory of Judah, the southern kingdom, um, during the ministry of Isaiah. And uh, today we are going to look at Hezekiah. Uh, He was the king at the time when this episode takes place. Our text comes from um, Isaiah chapter 37. We'll be reading verses 15 through 17 and verse 20. This is a prayer that Hezekiah prays when he's got his back up against the wall, when the odds are stacked against him. So let's stand together and read from God's word. Um, Isaiah chapter 37, beginning at verse 15. Here we go. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Verse 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. You may be seated. This is a prayer of desperation. We'll get into this prayer here in just a little bit. And the reason why Hezekiah is desperate is because he's got a threat um, at his doorstep, known as the Assyrian Empire. This fellow by the name of Sennacherib was the king at the time of the Assyrian Empire when this episode takes place. So what I want to do is go back to chapter 36, the beginning of where this story opens up and then work our way toward this prayer that I, um, Hezekiah prays and we'll appreciate a little bit better some of his words. So let's, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 36 starting at verse 1. It says in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So Hezekiah has been on the throne for 14 years. This is the year 701 BC. There's a little bit of debate amongst Bible scholars as to whether or not this was 701 or whether it was I think 719. Some say I'm sticking with 701 if you want to read more about that. I don't know if you go to Google has that or not, but anyhow, you can check it out. Uh, But 701 B.C., the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, it says Sennacherib, who was the king of the Assyrian army at the time, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. The Assyrian Empire was ambitious at this time in history. They wanted to conquer um, Egypt to the south of Israel, but to get to Israel, I'm sorry, to get to um, Egypt, they had to take out that that highway uh, that runs along the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea um, in order to get down to Egypt. And so you had to conquer all of these lands on your way down to Egypt. Verse 2, it says, And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. Let's take a look at our map. Let's help us get some bearings and some of these strange things that re- words that we're hearing here. Um, Lachish, you can see, is a city that sits about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Um, and it was one, it was a fortified city. In fact, I think I got a picture of that for you here. It was a fortified city. These are some of the ruins of Lachish. Um, and the city was under siege by the Assyrians. So basically the Assyrians know if we want to take out Jerusalem, which is kind of the hub, the strength of, of the nation of Judah, 
Um, this is their capital city. If we want to take out Jerusalem, then we need to take out all the, the fortified cities around Jerusalem because while we don't want, while we're fighting against Jerusalem and the people there, for all of these out, outlying cities to come and attack us, basically. So let's, let's do away with all their support mechanism, a Jerusalem support mechanism, and then uh, we'll go and take on Jerusalem uh, itself. Um, so at the Rabshakeh that's mentioned there in verse 2, go back to verse 2, uh, Rabshakeh that's been mentioned there is a high-ranking military officer. So this is just a title of this high-ranking military Assyrian officer. It's called a Rabshakeh. And he was sent to Jerusalem to convince the people of Jerusalem to, uh, and to convince King Hezekiah that resistance is futile, if any of you are um, Star Trek fans. Um, none in here, apparently. So what follows is the speech given by the Rabshakeh in which he tries to convince Jerusalem to surrender. So while the Assyrian army is laying siege to Lachish, um, this Rabshakeh is sent to Jerusalem to try and convince the people of Jerusalem, hey, look, you're, the, the same thing that's happening to Lachish is going to happen to you. It's inevitable. And so he's trying to convince them that they need to, um, it's time for them to surrender. Um, so let's take a look at some of the arguments that this Rabshakeh makes while he's standing outside the city walls of Jerusalem talking to a little envoy that slips outside the gate and they close the gate behind him. And so he's talking to this little, um, this little group of folks. So verse 6, it says, um, first of all, here's his first argument to the, uh, to the folks of Jerusalem, why they should surrender. He says, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff. In other words, the Rabshakeh um, assumes, perhaps correctly, that the people of Jerusalem are hoping that the Egyptian army will come up from the south and will attack the Assyrians. So they're hoping for some sort of deliverance from the Assyrian threat by the Egyptian army coming to their aid. Because Egypt knows, hey, look, strength in numbers, right? So if the Israelites are up there fighting against the Assyrians right now, maybe we should go join the fight, and then we can be able to take on this Assyrian threat together. Um, and he says, hey, look, they're a broken reed. Um, if you look at the documents from, from Assyria at this time, they talk about their battles with the Egyptians, and over and over again, the little skirmishes that they have with the Egyptians at this point in human history, they were just decimating the Egyptians over and over again. And so he calls the Egyptians a broken reed. That is a piece of marsh grass. Like, you can't put weight on that marsh grass, and it's not, it's not going to hold you. It's not going to support you um, like you think it's going to. It's going to snap. It's flimsy. He said, that's what he's calling the Egyptians, a broken reed. Point number two. So don't count on the Egyptians to help you out. Point number two, verse 7. He says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? So apparently the Assyrians have done a little research on some of the events that have taken place amongst their enemies, uh, the, the folks from Judah. And so the Assyrians thought that um, they, re they had learned that King Hezekiah had removed all of the high places, all the Asherah poles, all of the idol worship uh, that was taking place inside of the nation of Judah. And they thought this was a bad thing. The Assyrians did. But of course, we know from our view of, of the Bible and of what God's expectations are that he doesn't want idol worship. And so by Hezekiah purifying the land of Judah, this was actually a good thing. Again, the Rabshakeh is pointing this out because he thinks it was a bad thing, but that particular argument that he made probably fell flat. So on to point number three, middle of verse 10. The Rabshakeh says, The Lord your God said to me, He said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Well, the people who are inside the city walls are hearing this and they're thinking to themselves, Did God really tell him to come here? Is God punishing us? by sending the Assyrians to our doorstep. And so that begins to get the wheels turned a little bit, and the Rabshakeh realizes, ah, I've got a little crack, I've got a little fissure, I've, I've made some headway here. 
Um, and so he's, again, trying to unsettle the people who are inside the city walls. He's trying to convince them uh, with, through some psychological warfare to give up. In verse 11, we see evidence that this last point has actually struck a nerve. Verse 11 says that Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, the little envoy that was sent outside the gate, and then they shut the gate behind them, to talk with this Rabshakeh, that these uh, three folks, uh, that they request of him, they say, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. In other words, please stop talking in the language that the people up on those walls can understand. Um, this envoy knew Aramaic. At this point in human history, Aramaic was not the, the language of the region. Um, and so the Israelites, or Judah folks, they didn't know Aramaic. And so they're like, stop talking in Hebrew, please. Because um, so, we don't want them to hear what you, just, what you just said. They're worried that the folks are going to get upset about it, that they're going um, to get worried about uh, this issue of maybe God has sent the Assyrians here to our city gates to judge us. And so they say, end of verse 12, do not speak to us in the language of Judah, that would be Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So the envoy recognizes this last little convincing point that the Rabshakeh has thrown out could sway some folks. It could weaken their resolve to want to fight against the Assyrians. Now, from the flip side, isn't that the whole point? Isn't that what the Rabshakeh is there to do? He's there to try and convince the people inside the city walls, not just these uh, government officials that have been sent out to talk with him, but the people inside the walls that are holding out. He's trying to convince them that, hey, look, you need to let go of this. You need to surrender. Um, and so he says, basically, verse 13, he says, Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice. In other words, oh, you didn't like that last point? <laughs> let me say it a little bit louder for you. He says in verse 14, Thus says the king, Do not let the Hezekiah deceive you people, for he will not be able to deliver you. Verse 15, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. Don't listen to his voice. Verse 16, Do not listen to Hezekiah, folks. Instead, make peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. Life will be good again. Each one of you will have his own fig tree. Each one of you will drink water drawn from his own cistern. In other words, surrender to me. Surrender. I'm the representative of the Assyrian army. Just open the gates wide, wave the white flag, surrender to me, and all will be well. But if you stay shut up inside of that city, if you continue to resist, you will be destroyed. Now, we might imagine that some of the people fall for this. Some of the people, perhaps the pragmatists in the group, perhaps some of the more motivated by self-preservation than principle, perhaps the more gullible of the folks inside the city walls, the less discerning, the less shrewd uh, of the bunch, they begin to murmur and they begin to question the course that Hezekiah has set them on. I mean, they know that Lachish is under siege. They know that all of their neighbors to the north have all been decimated by the Assyrian army. They know that nobody has been able to stand up against this massive Assyrian threat. And so perhaps we should do as this guy is suggesting that we do. Perhaps we should open up the city gates. Perhaps we should wave the white flag. Perhaps we should uh, stop resisting. You can hear those voices murmuring all over the city, growing stronger by day in number and intensity. Now, Hezekiah has a decision to make. He knows that Lachish is under siege. He knows that no other country has been successful in repelling the Assyrians. Judah is no match for the Assyrian army. In fact, we learn later in chapter 37 that there were 185,000 Assyrian troops moving through the land of Judah at this time. This was a massive army. Hezekiah didn't have anything close to those kind of numbers. 
So Hezekiah is weighing all of this. Um, it's a David and Goliath kind of scenario. In addition, Hezekiah has pressure from some of his advisors, we might imagine, folks who are saying, you know what, we need to surrender. Uh, we need to follow the path of prudence here. We need to, the writings on the wall, and so we need to surrender. We need to roll the dice, hope that this guy shows us mercy, hope that he'll be honest and true to his word. If we fight, surely we're going to die. But the, and so he has to weigh all that out against the fact that Hezekiah knows that surrender does not mean safety. Hezekiah knows that surrender does not mean that they get their, keep their land and stay in Judah. The Assyrian policy, and he's watched this play out to the north time and time and time again, the Assyrian policy is to relocate conquered peoples elsewhere into the Assyrian Empire. Hezekiah knows he'll be the first one to have his head chopped off. All the government officials will be killed. He knows that many of the people inside the city of Jerusalem will be killed, and the ones who aren't killed, again, are going to be sent off into exile. And so he knows that, hey, look, the Rabshakeh may have said that we'll get to work our own vineyards. He may have said that we'll get to pick uh, figs from our own fig trees that we have planted. He may have said that we get to go and draw water that we dug from our own wells. He said, sure, he may say all that things, but I know that this man is lying to us. It's his job to come and say anything he has to say in order to convince us that we should surrender, that we should open the gates and give way to what it is that he's suggesting, that we should lay down our arms and stop fighting. That is his job. That's why he was sent here, to convince us to surrender. And so Hezekiah is wise to that. When we put all this together, it seems like Hezekiah is in a no-win situation. The odds are very much stacked against him. If he fights, if he resists, defeat is just about guaranteed. Yet if he surrenders, Hezekiah and all of his officials will be slaughtered. Many of the people will be slaughtered as well, and the rest will be exiled. It seems like Hezekiah has been painted into a pretty tight corner. So what should he do? Well, in just a moment, we will answer that question. What should he do? But first, I want to stop and ask another question, which is our most important question we ask about every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Because in answering what should he do, Hezekiah talks about or shows us what difference this makes to your life and to mine. So let's take a few moments to, uh, to look at that, um, how Hezekiah handles this situation. Um, here's Hezekiah's response, uh, point number one. Here's the first thing he does. When the odds are stacked against him, what does he do? Number one, he humbles himself and cries out to God. He humbles himself and cries out to God. That may sound cliche, but friends, this is what God wants for us to do. When we get backed into a corner, when we find the odds stacked strongly against us, God wants for us to humble ourselves. He wants for us to go down on our knees. He wants for us to cry out to him in those moments. Look at chapter 37 and verse 1. This is what Hezekiah did. It says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that is the words from the Rabshakeh, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. Um, I've got a picture here for you of sackcloth. We would call this what? Burlap, right, we call it burlap. You can imagine walking around with this stuff. It would be very itchy. It's very unadorned. I mean, there's no, like, no, uh, there's nothing fancy about this whatsoever. This is not the clothing of kings, right? And, but Hezekiah puts this stuff on, and it's an outward symbol to show what he's feeling in his heart, that he's feeling humble before God. He's coming before God and with, with, with his, with, on his knees, coming before God, asking for help. Um, he's not projecting 
confidence here. And so Hezekiah was humbling himself outwardly as an expression of how he was feeling in his heart. For us, this might look like getting on our knees. It might look like praying and seeking God on our face, crying out to him for help. Notice that God wants this. The Bible does not rebuke Hezekiah for humbling himself, for putting on this sackcloth, for, for crying out to God for help. Rather, verse 21 reports that because you have prayed, uh, Isaiah says, because you, speaking the words of God here, because you have prayed to me, um, uh, Hezekiah, concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and then God goes on to say, here's what I'm going to do on your behalf. Because you put on sackcloth, because you humbled yourself, because you cried out to me um, for help, I'm going to um, come and work on your behalf. So Hezekiah humbles himself, he cries out to God. It says there at the end of verse 1 that he went into the house of the Lord. That is, he got down on his knees, he wept at the altar, he sat quietly in God's presence, he petitioned the Lord for aid and for help. Friends, when life goes sideways, when life goes sideways, our instincts should be exactly what Hezekiah did. We should humble ourselves before God, and God wants us. He's telling us here through his word, this is, this is the formula, this is what I want you to do. I want you to humble yourself and to cry out to me for help. Friends, the pagan world, the secular world, the non-believing world, when their life turns upside down, they run around mad at the world. They run around trying to find somebody to blame. They run around trying to find somebody to fix all of this, but not for us, not for Christians. We run to God. It's like David said in the psalmist. He wrote Psalm chapter 121 and verse 1, from where does my help come? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord. All right, so that's point number one. What do we do when the odds are stacked against us? Number one, we humble ourselves and cry out to God. That is what God petitions us, wants for us to do. Number two, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, when the odds are stacked against us, number two, we need to be reminded that we serve the almighty God. You know that term almighty? It means he is almighty. He's the strongest. He is omnipotent. And so we need to be reminded that the God that we serve is over everything. Look at Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah is in the temple. He prays Isaiah 37 and verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, I mean, the cherubim were those live angels with the three sets of wings, and, they would, would, and God's presence rested on top of them. That was the throne of God in the temple. Isaiah saw that in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord highly and exalted on his, on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he goes on to talk about these cherubim that were there that were crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so Hezekiah, probably having had... Isaiah preached a few sermons about that. It was like, hey, you're the God who's enthroned above the cherubim. That's who I'm talking to here. He says, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah is recognizing who he is praying to. This is not some impotent God of the Egyptians or some inanimate idol of the Assyrians. He is praying to the living God of the universe who made heaven and and earth. Friends, if we are limited in our requests to God, perhaps it's because we are limited in our view of who God is. Again, this is almighty God of the universe that we are praying to. Many of you know that my wife Claire had some pretty serious, I'm already kind of, uh, sorry, 
back surgery. All right, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. I won't cry this morning. Uh, had some pretty serious back surgery back in January. Some of you have been following uh, our, her story and kind of how things went there. She's doing much better, by the way, much better. Uh, she's walking in and out of here on Sundays. It's remarkable. I mean, it's just a miracle of the Lord that he's touched her body and allowed her to recover to the point that she has. Um, but I remember the night of her surgery, and she was feeling pretty calm, and I was feeling pretty calm. We knew that she was down at Mayo Clinic. We knew that she was in the very best of hands, and the surgeon that was going to perform things was just the best of the best, and he was a remarkable guy. So we, were, we, were, we had a lot of people praying for us, and so we just knew that God was in control here, and we were laying this in his hands, and we were feeling a sense of peace and a sense of calm. She went in for pre-op around 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The surgery started maybe around 3 o'clock. I sat out in the waiting room. I graded some papers. I mean, that's how calm I was, right? I was like, Lord, you got this. So I was grading some papers, catching up on some work. I was making a few phone calls, emailing a few folks, kind of giving some updates. But when it got to around 8 o'clock in the evening, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, why have I not heard anything? <laughs> I've been sitting here, uh, you know, the time's been ticking by, and I start to get a little anxious. I start to get a little bit antsy. And uh, they said the surgery would take maybe five hours, maybe as long as seven hours. Um, I'm sitting in this really big surgery waiting room. It's this massive space, runs across the whole front of the hospital. And there's people I've been watching coming and going all throughout the day uh, that are there, you know, waiting on their loved ones who are in surgery. And I'm seeing all these names on the board, and the names get less and less on the board, and Claire's name's still up there on the board. And I'm just thinking to myself, uh, you know, th then it gets down to 8 o'clock, and there's like me and this one other guy. And so finally he gets a phone call, and his wife's, you know, doing well. And so, and so I'm just left there in the, in the waiting room by myself. And then the lady who's going to do some cleaning comes in. She says, sir, coming about 9 o'clock, she says, sir, at 9 o'clock we always close down the surgery waiting room. I'm like, well, I mean, she's not done yet. And she said, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave so we can do our cleaning. I'm like, okay. She said, going up to the ICU waiting room. I said, okay, I'll go up there. I was like, you, you sure they can find me, right? She said, yeah, they'll, they'll know where you're at. So it's about 9 o'clock. I'm up in the ICU waiting room, still nothing. And I'm really beginning to sweat at this point. doing a lot of praying. Sorry. 9.30 rolled along, nothing. 9.45 rolled along, still nothing. There's this family that came in maybe around 9.30 or so, and they were clearly in crisis. Their mom had uh, been life-flighted to the uh, Mayo Clinic. She had had a really severe stroke, and so the daughters were there, the sons were there, their families were there. Uh, her husband, older gentleman, was there. And I was just kind of watching what was going on with them, and I was still kind of praying and thinking. And finally, about 10 o'clock, sorry, I was not playing on this this morning. <laughs> finally, about 10 o'clock, uh, my phone rings, and it's the surgeon who had performed the spinal surgery. And he said, hey, look, things went really well. We feel really good about uh, what we saw and what we're able to do and accomplish and um, she's going to be, they're finishing up, closing up the incision, and, and, and we'll, you'll be able to see her in a little bit in her room. Um, you know, up to this point, I had kind of really gotten isolated emotionally. Um, there was stuff going on over here with this family, and then another family that was in the ICU waiting, waiting room, it was kind of, they let people sleep in there, I guess, and so they dimmed the lights down pretty low, and so I was able to just kind of retreat in a corner by myself. And I really didn't want to talk to anybody at that point. I was just praying. <laughs> Um, when, when I got that word, I lobbed out a bunch of text messages and a, lunch, a lot of emails. 
And uh, just to let folks know that, you know, what we had heard and the surgery was a success. Uh, but there's still this family sitting over there in the ICU, and, and I can tell that they're hurting. I can tell that they've been, you know, they've been sitting there together, um, and I haven't said anything to them up to this point. And so now that I've let folks know and was uh, kind of taking a, a deep breath for a moment, I turned to them and I said, how are y'all doing? And they said, not too good. And so they began to share with me the story of uh, their mom and how she had had a severe stroke, and they were really concerned about her situation. And uh, the lady, could, one of the daughters, could tell I wasn't doing real good. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and at that point, I was doing a little better. And so she said, uh, she said well, how are you doing? Because you know, I had that same kind of worried look that, that they were feeling at the time. And um, I said, better. And uh, I said, do you mind if I pray with y'all? Um, I had no idea that they were a believing family or not. And I didn't tell them that I was a local church pastor or anything like that. I was just some guy in the waiting room who was dealing with his own stuff while they were dealing with their stuff. And they said, please, we'd love to pray. And so I walked over, we stood up, we held hands, we prayed for their mama by name, we prayed for God's healing hands. And friends, let me tell you, there was such remarkable peace that fell on that family, and that fell over, over me as well. When we finished praying, <clears throat> the lady's husband just bear-hugged me, didn't say a word, he just hugged me. Um, what do we take away from all of this? Well, please don't take away that if we pray and if we put on sackcloth, that the God of the universe will do what we ask him to do. Please don't take away from it. Maybe, maybe he will. Maybe he won't. I have no idea what happened with that family's mama. But what I can say is that pr prayer is how God wants for us to respond when the odds are stacked against us. And when we do pray, whether God grants the request or not, God will usher in supernatural peace, the kind that we cannot get anywhere else. And so I'm glad that the almighty God of the universe cares about ICU waiting rooms. Now I have one last point, and, and I know I'm over time. Hey, Gordon, couldn't you just be done right there? I got one more point. I need y'all to hear this, okay? I'll be brief. My last point is this. If you've lived long enough, you will experience ICU waiting rooms. You will experience bad news from doctors. You will experience adversity at work. You will experience adversity from family relationships, from friendships. Situations like Hezekiah was facing where it doesn't seem like there's a way out. Friends, when those times come, and they will come, the enemy will always send Rabshakehs to try and convince us to abandon the God that we serve. He will say, why don't you just stop biting? Why don't you just wave the white flag and give up and surrender to me? I I'll lead you. I I'll, I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. The enemy will use psychological war warfare on us. He will say anything to try and convince us to abandon our faith, to abandon our principles, to abandon what we know from the Bible to be true. Follow me, he says. Don't worry about that, God. Friends, when that happens, let's remind ourselves of one thing. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, Paul said it well. He said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Friends, when we fight, when we suffer, and maybe we die, but I'm not living for reward in this life. My reward, my hope, is in the life to come. So what difference does this make to my life, friends? Surrender to the prince of this world will not make things better. It won't. It will, may win you some friends temporarily. It may win you some acceptance temporarily. But ultimately, in the end, that messenger is a liar. That's what he is. And his whole reason for existing is to try to get you to concede. He will promise you safe passage. He will promise you a better life. But friends, he cannot deliver. In the end, his way is the way that leads to destruction. Be like Hezekiah. Be wise. Be shrewd. Don't be gullible. See your enemy for who he really is. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us today from your word. Um, it is fresh, it is new, and our heart and our ears always. God, your truth cuts through, uh, cuts through to the heart. It reminds us of who we are, who's in control. Or when we see things as they really are, we gain such perspective, God, we gain confidence. We know where our trust needs to be. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, reminded, Lord Jesus, of your shed blood and of your broken body, may we once again reaffirm our belief, our hope, our trust in you. God, you have our lives. You, we are yours, God. Our lives are in your hands. And so, Lord, may we just express that humility that humility, with humility, Lord, may we express that loyalty once again. God, we give you this space. Holy Spirit, stir and work in our hearts, we pray in Christ's holy name.